0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast that explores the theology of the coronation rite, devised by William Gulliford, and hosted by William and Anders Burqueist. Produced by me, Emily Culvite.
1: This is the Crown Uncovered.
0: Welcome to Where Theology Meets Politics episode of The Crown Uncovered, the podcast which endeavours to make sense of the coronation rite for those in and connected with the Church of England as it prepares for the 6th of May, the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. This is very exciting. From a clergy study in North London where most of our episodes are being recorded, I'm in one of the very sumptuous committee rooms of the House of Lords today, as well as the Lords Spiritual, the 26 bishops who sit in order of seniority or by right in the second chamber, there are some ordained peers, and today it's the greatest privilege to be meeting the Reverend and Right Honourable Baroness Sherlock, Labour Shadow Minister for Work and Pensions in the House of Lords. She has a long-standing background in the voluntary sector, the NUS, a name certainly to be reckoned with when I was an undergraduate, worked later with the National Refugee Council, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and now, as a working peer, she is also Associate Vicar of St Nick's in Durham, where she previously did her curacy. Maeve, I really don't know how you have time to sleep, especially because <laughs> you're also priest vicar of Westminster Abbey. Uh, thank you very much indeed for being with us.
1: It's lovely to be here, William. I wonder if you could start
0: us off with the prayer that is said by one of the bishops in the House of Lords every day when the House of Lords is sitting.
1: Yes, we start all proceedings with prayers. In fact, the proceedings can't start until the prayers have been read by a bishop. Um, And there are a number of them, but let me read one of them out. Almighty God, by whom alone kings reign and princes decree justice, and from whom alone cometh all counsel, wisdom and understanding, we, thine unworthy servants, here gathered together in thy name, do most humbly beseech thee to send down thy heavenly wisdom from above to direct and guide us in all our consultations and grant that we having thy fear always before our eyes and laying aside all private interests, prejudices and partial affections. The result of all our counsels may be to the glory of thy blessed name, the maintenance of true religion and justice, the safety, honour and happiness of the King, the public wealth, peace and tranquillity of the realm and the uniting and knitting together of the hearts of all persons and estates within the same in true Christian love and charity, one towards another, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Amen.
0: I've never heard that before. That's really lovely. What a a range of images. I love the knitting.
1: (laughs) The knitting is excellent. I hear it every day, every sitting day. And also it really concentrates the mind because it reminds us we are laying down um, all partial affections. We are here there to make impartial judgments and not in our own interests.
0: Yeah, we're talking about the coronation, as you know, and looking at it from a range of angles. At every turn, the perspective of the Church of England is in the mix in, in one way or another as the host of the right. Traditionally, the coronation has taken place surrounded by the Lords and Commons. This time, it may be a little different. Certainly, the hereditary peerage is but a tiny proportion of those sitting in the Lords, um, and that's been one of the insti- interesting constitutional changes in the last reign. As both a priest of the established church and a spiritual, or at least ordained, lord temporal, what do you make of the coronation rite that we'll be witnessing on the sixth of May, and, and its relation to your your work here?
1: Well, I, I'm definitely not a lord spiritual uh, there. The bishops, and I'm thankfully not a bishop, but I am an ordained lord temporal, and we are we are a rare uh, category. Um, I won't be going to the congregation, nor will most members of the House of Lords this time. Um, That that will be a change. But on the ceremony, I think the first thing, I'm reminded that we're seeing something that goes deep back into our roots. I mean, we can trace back coronation ceremonies for the monarchs of England and Scotland and then, I guess, Great Britain and the UK for more than a thousand years. And... And, of course, second, it's a ceremony of parts. Now, I'm not privy to what will happen in the coronation ceremony. You probably know more than I do about that, William. I don't even know how similar it will be to the coronation of Her Majesty the Queen. But, obviously, we can assume it'll be a Church of England Eucharistic service conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But as well as being a Christian service, it, it reflects, of course, in fact, embodies aspects of our constitution with loads of symbolism and not a small amount of theatre thrown in for good measure.
0: A bit of Gilbert Sullivan,
1: uh, indeed. <laughs> um, and the, all the various elements: when the procession, the recognition, the anointing, the oath, and the oath is interesting to me because in it, of course, the monarch swears to uphold the law, to deliver justice with mercy, and to support the settlement of the Church of England. But I'm also fascinated by the fact that our monarch is still anointed as well as Mm. crowned. It's just and it's as unusual as it is interesting. Mm. And there's something, of course, anointing is about setting apart for a purpose. And I think that's a really powerful thing uh, to be seeing, as is the use of chrism oil. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. chrism oil is used for baptism as a priest. You know, I use it for baptism, for baptism, for ordination. And of course, elements of both of which I'm sure you've explored elsewhere will underpin this ceremony. But the king's been crowned as a head of state, but anointed as one representing us, I suppose, as kings of old embodied their people. And the other bit I think is fascinating is the olive oil itself, of course. Mm. so it's, We're using olive oil, I mean, which, which is on which well, the base of the chrismal will be olive oil that has come from monasteries um, on the, the Mount of Olives. I mean, the Church of Magdalene and the Church of the Ascension. I and mean, these olive groves are in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus agonised and prayed and was arrested. And I think in particular that connection of the Church of St Magdalena as a family link with Her Majesty, His Majesty the King. I mean, his, his great-aunt, his quite extraordinary great-aunt mm-hmm. with all that she represented mm-hmm. and his grandmother um, are buried there. I mean, his great-aunt is now St Elizabeth, I mean, a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, whose husband commissioned the church of, of St Magdalena. So it's awash with symbolism. The oil from olives grown on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane goes back to the heart of our Christian story, as well as telling a story of the king's own family. And I think that's incredibly powerful.
0: Thank you, thank you. And clearly, yes, you see all the different um, both spiritual and historic connections. Thank you so much. The King presides over our parliamentary democracy. His throne and mace sit in the chamber at the dispatch box of which you stand. What does the crown in Parliament mean for you as a Christian peer and Labour shadow minister?
1: It's, it's fascinating. Of course, if the mace is not in its place, we can't sit. I mean, it's, it's so every day starts um, we, we, the, is by the, the mace being processed into the chamber, um, led ahead of the, of the Lord Speaker. And the mace is then pressed down and then we, we pray and then we start our deliberations. And if the house is suspended, then the, 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 the mace is removed because the authority is not there. But that concept of the crown, of course, developed in England as a separation of the physical crown and property of the kingdom from the person and personal property of the monarch. But the term the crown encompasses both the monarch and the government. It's vested in the king, but in general its functions are exercised by ministers of the crown, accountable to us in Parliament or to the devolved legislatures. For me being practical, when we pass legislation here, the the crown must give royal assent to those bills or they don't become law. And crucially, in that coronation oath, the monarch swears to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth realms according to their respective laws and customs. So it's very much that we are a constitutional monarchy. So we, this is the crown in Parliament. It's not simply the crown over Parliament or the crown separate from Parliament. And that, that and that is embodied in the may sitting there in the place as we debate the, the, the laws and as we approve them.
0: Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. I'd not quite thought of it in, in those terms. Um, I'd I'd seen it more as over, but I see exactly what you mean. It's sort of sitting in the midst uh, with everything happening around it, empowering it, but at the same time um, uh, integral to it. It's not uh, over it in the way that previously the monarchy saw itself as.
1: It is, I mean... In one sense, of course, it's over it, in Mm. in the sense that the monarch rules over all of us. But it isn't executive power, untrammeled Mm. executive power, in the way it once would have been. And that expression of the Crown in Parliament, I think, embodies that.
0: What do you think is the role of leadership in terms of care of the weak and imperatives for justice?
1: I think the notion that leadership should involve care for the weak is fundamental to a Christian understanding of the right use of power. But, of course, that wasn't the case historically necessarily at all in other societies. I mean, for us, it's a clear gospel imperative. And to use power in a way which did not raise up the weak um, or support those on the margins would be to fail um, in the use of that power that had been given to one for those purposes. But I think we sometimes forget how unusual that is that for much of history in many societies, power would have been used for the benefit of those holding it and to protect them. And the presumption wouldn't be that one should look out particularly for that. But clearly it's the case here.
0: And, and strong Old Testament um, direction behind that oh, oh, oh,
1: incredibly strong so i'm, tell you, I'm just the gospel yes. of course of course looking out for the orphan and the widow and raising them up i'm thinking more that in in classical times you know in in greek or roman times the presumption that you that you having got power you would necessarily use it to raise up the weak was not one you would take for granted at all
0: mm-hmm. as a priest in politics particularly here what do you think you bring and say that is distinctive? How do you bring the two bits of your life together?
1: I think they can only come together, really, in my person. You know, I'm ordained and therefore I'm, I'm a priest when I'm at the dispatch box. I'm a priest when I'm in my church. I'm a priest when I'm washing up. Mm. I'm a priest, I, mean, I am a priest in the Church of God. I mean, my day job, if you like, is, is my core job, is to be the Shadow Minister for Work and Pensions. So I scrutinise legislation, I challenge the government when I think they're wrong, I advance alternative policies. And sometimes I simply bear witness to what I think is going wrong in the country. Mm-hmm. And there I draw not only on my own experience, but actually what I see in my church, mm-hmm. what I hear from the experience of so many other churches. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really powerful, practical source of, information and intelligence to me. The way as so many churches are out there running food banks in their communities, supporting people, there are some really powerful and frankly distressing tales mm-hmm. of how people are struggling at the moment. And sometimes I can't change things. I'm the opposition. I'm not in charge. But sometimes I can at least bear witness to them. Mm-hmm. And also I think it's you know, this is a very the Lord's is a very relational place and mm-hmm. politics is very embodied. Mm-hmm. And in as much as my ordination changed me, then of course it changes my interactions with those around me. And also I can undertake some ministry here. I mean, you know, I mean I've presided at communion I'm in the chapel. I baptised babies. I've led a memorial service for a colleague in St Margaret's Church. So I get, really, as a minister in secular employment to do that as well. And that's a huge privilege.
0: What, what, a, what a wonderful place to minister. Um, and I, just going back to your context in the northeast of England, I imagine with Newcastle just a few miles down the road one way and Sunderland another, and, and Durham with its mining background and history, there are... whole range of social issues that are confronting your your Sunday ministry or weekend ministry uh, all the time that you would be bringing back.
1: There there really are and and my church has has fairly recently opened up a a social justice cafe trying to to welcome people in and support them but there are there is just so much poverty I mean people I one of the things I just think part of my job is to raise here is that I sometimes think it's hard to realise how many people have only just about been coping before this cost-of-living crisis came on. And if they were only just coping before, then many of them are simply not coping now. And I'm just seriously worried about how many families just no longer know how they're going to pay the bills at the end of the month or how they'll put food on the tables. And just the sheer growth in the, the rise in the use of food banks. I met with the Trussell Trust recently. just I'm just It's shocking the, the, the rate at which demand for their services is going up. And and but I can at least if I can bring those experiences in, I can engage them, I can show them, and use them in speeches. I will refer to things. I will share experience with others, and that that it's I'm grateful for the ability to do that. And
0: just going back to that nice idea of the relational character of the lords, do you find that there's an ease of discussion in the tea room, um, in the corridors? With colleagues on the other side of the chamber who uh, are also trying to work for social justice and 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 understand and the the, the very chronic needs that there are that need changing is there a, is there an ease of dialogue which is beyond the immediately party political here
1: sometimes? Yeah, and in the Lords it is it is very um, it's very much easier I think to do things cross party. Although I should say there are all party parliamentary groups which co- cover all all parties and none in the case of the crossbenchers and both houses. But in the Lords, quite often um, we will we'll, we'll get. To together with people from different benches um, to try to amend bills to make them better. Um, And it very much is a place where where relationships are easy. But also, even with people we don't agree with, I'm in a prayer triplet with a Conservative and a Liberal Democrat peer, and we meet and pray together weekly. And we don't agree on everything. There are some issues in which we disagree profoundly. But we are connected by our common faith. We're connected in and through God. And we pray together, and we're able to do that because we understand each other and respect each other, even where we disagree. And and, and that, that makes a huge difference.
0: So the, the layout of the, the house with the sort of two opposing benches, admittedly with the cross benches in the middle, um, doesn't necessarily mean that things have to be diametrically opposed, that there is a, an opportunity for, for discussion and uh,
1: I think that the big difference with the Lords is we are we're not a classic second chamber. We we're, we're a revising chamber. I mean the UK doesn't really have a bicameral system. It's really a unicameral system with a bolt-on revising chamber. <laughs> you know the point of the Lords is we we're, we're we're not here to 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 change everything that the elected house in the end gets its way. Our job is to do two things, one to improve the legislation and secondly sometimes to say are you really sure about that? Just think again. Are you really sure? And in the end, if they think again, they get their way. So in that respect, we, we're often united in trying to make bad laws better um, and make good laws better still. That's our job. And, and of course, good people of, of, of people of goodwill from around the House can see when things are wrong, and we'll get together to try to persuade the government to, to make, to change its mind. Sometimes we succeed, often we don't, sometimes we vote, and sometimes the Commons overturns it. That's what we're here for. At
0: the risk of Being political on one particular subject, just before this recording, the Home Secretary proposed banning anyone who arrived on these shores illegally from entering the UK uh, or even applying for citizenship. The Danish Queen, some little while ago, in a New Year broadcast, a bit like the King or Queen's uh, Christmas broadcast here, spoke passionately about the rights of refugees in her country. Do you think that the king should speak up about such issues where where there may be they're just with, within the line of what is appropriate and constitutional for a king or queen to to say in our constitutional setup where where do you think the line is and how does the king play that
1: I think it's very hard to say where the line is I think it depends not even just on the issue but on the the issue, the time that's in it, you know, where the political climate is, um, and, and how strongly the King feels about it. I mean, the monarch, of course, has to tread a careful line. Um, he's unelected, but he has great influence in his weekly audiences with the Prime Minister of the Day, and I'm quite sure he will want to understand precisely what's happening to his people and in his realm, and will doubtless share his own views on a range of issues, um, probably, I mean, very clearly in the, in the privacy of those encounters. And there may be points when he feels he has to let his views be known, either directly or indirectly. But to disagree with the government publicly on a contentious issue is quite a nuclear option. And the thing about nuclear weapons is you can't use them very often.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. In terms of modern Britain as a monarchy and faith in the public square, not least in Parliament, do you mind hazarding your views on the establishment in terms of its promotion of faith in public discourse?
1: I think about establishment, I think think it's poorly understood. And I think two things to remember at the outset. First, of course, is that establishment predates really the whole concept of a clear distinction between church and state. So with the result that the roots of the two are so deeply intertwined below ground in ways that have shaped our national story and self-understanding, that it's quite hard to know how we separate those out. And second to remember, of course, the C of E is the church by law established only in England the church of scotland is the established or at least national church in scotland and we have no established church in wales or northern ireland which when it comes to the relationship with the monarchy is is an interesting point mm-hmm. i mean i I also think, I find sometimes colleagues that don't understand that the, the basic financial support that used to go from the state to the Church of England for establishment disappeared in the 19th century. You know? mm-hmm. And so we are now deeply intertwined legally, of course, in both directions, with, with Parliament having to approve any significant changes to the, to the, um, to the Church's legislation or, or shape or functioning, and, and, vice, you know, and vice versa, the, the 26 bishops in the House of Lords um, being playing a part in our legislature, and then the parish structure and being there in every part of the country. I think the thing that I find most striking with the Church of England establishment is that it's when the state does God, or sometimes just ritual or meaning making, it turns to the Church of England. And we see that formally at you know, remembrance services and jubilees. We see it with more blurred edges at times of national crisis or celebration. And above all, of course, we see it in the coronation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the other bit is that the Church of England represents the role of faiths more broadly. I mean, it uses its convening power to hold the space for faith in the life of the nation and in our public debates and and discourses. And I think in doing so, it stands for a worldview that is historically rooted, is communitarian and is grounded in identity and narrative. And I think that's something that's quite powerful. I, I
0: think... Following what you've just said, uh, we should change the name of the establishment to just "Doing God." It's a
2: great summary. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I think it's doing God and meaning making. I think meaning there making, is something yeah. broader than that, and I, meaning making is such a uh, jargony term. But there is something. It's doing the other, isn't it? It's doing. Something and that the isn't a threat
0: edge. in this country, in the way that it seems to be in some other European countries. I, I think France, particularly, it's a very toxic. Um, history that they have of church-state relations, and whenever a president um, talks to the Catholic Bishops Conference or any uh, Christian group, the the, the flak that they can get just by saying hello to them is almost um, well, unimaginable here somehow. So it's a very particular relationship that, that exists here. <laughs>
1: It is very unusual, and different countries have done it in different ways, of course. I mean, I, I sometimes talk to Americans who, whom they have this formal separation mm. between religion and the state. Mm. And yet, of course, American politics is way more Christian than our politics. Yes. And they come here, and yet the, 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 they see an established church, and, and it's intertwined. And yet British politicians would be very, very much less likely to talk about their faith in terms of their politics. So they are very different ways of doing it. The French experience, or indeed aspects in, 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 in Belgium or elsewhere, have been quite unusual. And I I don't... There just seems to be something about the Elizabethan settlement that seems to have enabled us to hold together um, in a way that, for now, works. I think it's only always provisional. I think, you know, it's always provisional. At some point, Mm. it it gets... But like every other aspect of our strange constitution, you know, And I... I, if you, I mean, I live in Durham, which is, you know, uh, in some ways a mad place. It's 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 a, it's full of hills. It's on a peninsula. It's full of winding. You know, if you design Durham now, you would design it like on a grid, like Chicago. You never, you wouldn't dream of starting like that any more than London. But of course, our constitution wasn't designed. It evolved over many many centuries, and therefore, it has the shape it has, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And however strange it is,
0: we're thinking about the coronation. The Abbey is such a central place within the history of it, since. Uh, King Harold, so before the Norman Conquest, Um, you're connected with the Abbey, What, what role does the Abbey have in contemporary political life?
1: For us, the, the Abbey, of course, uh, St Margaret's Church, which was traditionally the parish church of the House of Commons, is 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 a part of, of Westminster Abbey, and we go over there for services. There's usually a service at the start of a new Parliament. Um, there there is a monthly communion service there for, for MPs and peers. Um, there are there are memorial services held there for MPs and peers. I mean, I I have conducted myself, and, and it's very much somewhere that is is at the heart of that. But also, the Dean of Westminster is the Ordinary for um, for not just for the Abbey, but also for 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 the Chapel in Parliament. Um, And so as a priest vicar of the Abbey, I'm I'm therefore also authorised to to do things in the chapel here. So it very much is, this this is our space, as well as our neighbour. We look across Mm. the road at each other. I mean, you could not get any closer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And it has such a place in the life of the nation and
1: affectionate... Oh, it, it does. I and mean, coronations, it? of course, but also major national spectacles. I mean, St Paul's also, we mustn't forget yes, St Paul's, yes, you yes. know, which has had some very important national events. But yes, the Abbey is... is. We've seen so many events and there's so many images seared into all of our, our mind's eyes of things that have happened there that it is about as historical as possible to get. And a very, very beautiful space.
0: Mm. What are you able to say without any problems from the, the wits in your party about bishops in the House of Lords.
1: Oh, well, no, the bishops in the House of Lords are, are a valued part of um, what's here. Um, we, there are 26 of them. I mean, uh, as your listeners may know, I mean, they automatically, the two archbishops, the bishops of London, Durham and Winchester, sit there as of right. And after that, the 21 longest serving diocesan bishops, with the exception that if there is a woman diocesan bishop who's not in, when, when, when the vacancy arises, she jumps the queue to try to bring up the number of women um, that were brought in. Um... And I mean, other faith leaders and members of other denominations can be in the Lords, but they are life peers; they're Lords temporal, they're not Lords spiritual. And the bishops are, are a, a, um, a, an important part of what, what they're one of our benches. You know, that they, they one of them reads the prayers every day, as, as we've discussed. They participate in in debates. They vote. They sit on committees. Um, I mean, they're unusual, interestingly, in having a geographical constituency, unlike yes. any of the rest of us. Um, Formally, they do, um, because I mean, Luke Bretherton, the theologian, I think, I think it was once commented that the Commons is a series of geographical um, perspectives and the Lords is a series of overlapping vocational perspectives. And so in that, that world of overlapping vocational perspectives are these people who do have that, but they also bring a geographical perspective. And so they will often speak up for their communities as well as speaking out of their Christian faith. But they, they sort of hold that space for faith at the heart of our legislature. And it's something that's often commented by members of other faiths as well. And I think it does represent a rejection of the idea, the secular narrative, that somehow only the secular narrative is a neutral narrative and everything else must be different or private or differentiated. So there, 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 are, there are bishops who, are, who are, uh, they, they play a really important role in this. Now, at some point, I mean, the Lords. If you imagine the Lords has these strange, it's got the political parties. So there's the government, the official opposition, which at the moment is Labour. I hope Bondi will swap. <laughs> um, there were the Liberal Democrats, and there are a couple of Greens and other parties. There were the crossbenches who were independent. There are the, there, are, there are, and then there were the bishops' benches. And and we have some. We still have ninety-two hereditary peers, despite repeated attempts to uh, to remove them. So it's it's a, you know, it's a complicated historical mix. And it works remarkably well in, in, in practice, even if it would probably you would never do it in theory.
0: And how how do you see the development, perhaps in the next few years, in this reign of the role of faith leaders from other communities having either a statutory or just a. Um, a uh, life peerage type role um, where they they come into the House of Lords and play a, a part within the life of the House of Lords.
1: I, I, that has been growing, and I would hope it would grow further mm. because it's it's a real asset to the House to have people coming in from different perspectives. You know, and and that I would very much hope that that would grow. We we hope there is so much that could be done. I mean, that the Labour Party has a um, a plan to to move to an, an elected House, which would be connect, which it will, it will consult on uh, in government. But in in the short term, the House of Lords ourselves, we've been trying. To reform for a long time, trying to to shrink it, trying to change the way people are appointed, but we haven't. Uh, we have, the government has not um, has not allowed that to go forward. So I've no doubt this will change. I mean that the, the 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 role of the bishops in the House of Lords is fun- fundamentally tied into our, the establishment and our our history. They were there at the outset. There were abbots, yeah. of course, I and mean, abbesses right mm-hmm. at the beginning mm-hmm. when when the, the night when the, when the people were being called because they were landowners. So they, they, their, their participation goes goes back a long way in one way or another, and I'm sure things will change in the future. But for the moment, they play. a very very valuable role and they're appreciated.
0: And, and even perhaps in the coronation service do you think mm-hmm. there might, might be a part for uh, faith leaders of, of other traditions having some part either in the uh, preamble to the coronation itself or within the service?
1: Obviously, I have no idea what will be mm-hmm. done, and, and of course, there must be there were some limitations on what can happen in in the service. But but I, but there certainly should be a place of honor for people from other faiths. I mean, I, I think that would acknowledge the multiple functions of the coronation that we discussed earlier. But also, the king has spoken of his understanding of Britain as a community of communities, and of his and of his duty to protect the space for other fa- other faiths, and as he said, to respect those who live in accordance with secular ideals. And I don't regard that as contradictory with his role as Supreme Governor of the C of E. I mean, it's the Church of England itself plays that key role in holding the space for faith in general in the public square. And I think it would be a really important um, development to see people from other faiths involved in the coronation.
0: Maeve, thank you so much for your time. Busy working week and travelling back to Durham, but thank you very much indeed. You've given us a range of, of views on... the the constitutional workings of the House of Lords and and how it feels to be here and work within it. Uh, We're very fortunate. Thank you so much.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, William.
0: We've just been inside a committee room of the House of Lords and heard a spiritual Lord Temporal, at least an ordained Lord Temporal, describing her work. What were the things which struck you about what Maeve was telling us?
2: How interesting it was to be taken, in a sense, in this particular conversation, a bit further away from the coronation, that event, um, and into the constitutional structure of the realm and the way in which the established church fits into that and the way in which the different um, houses of parliament uh, Uh, Interact together. That was uh, extraordinarily uh, interesting. I suppose I was very struck by this notion that the mace in the chamber, and I guess this goes for the Commons as well as the Lords, is what symbolizes. The crown in parliament, that uh, the, the crown, the mace is uh, literally there uh, in the centre of the assembly. And it reminded me of the way in which at the early Christian councils, the classic councils like the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, the gospel was enthroned in the middle of the meeting. So that that was, if you like, Christ in council. Of course, on the analogy of crown in Parliament, we have bishop in synod as a phrase that you hear a lot in the Church of England. But I think when you start to look at that a bit more carefully, the uh, similarities start to uh, start to become uh, harder to see. Uh, But how interesting also that it's a mace that's there. I found myself wondering why not the crown in Parliament, an actual crown, uh, to symbolise the crown. Uh, Where where does the crown come from, do, do you think?
0: Well, that's a very good question. Certainly, when the Prince of Wales opened Parliament when uh, the last time when the Queen couldn't do it, the crown did sit there in the place where the Queen's throne would have been, and he sat next to it. The origin of crowns is very interesting. There's certainly strong Old Testament suggestions of them, but whether or not they come further back from Persia and more, more eastern parts of the world, I'm not entirely sure. But there also seems to be An interesting, almost confusion between the crown and the turban of the high priest, that the the words that are used in, in Hebrew are interchangeable between the two. So there's an interesting blurring of those two
2: symbols. And in the New Testament, of course, where there are lots of crowns, there are the elders throwing down their crowns in the book of Revelation, but... We have to be bit careful about reading our modern crowns into uh, that sort of scene. I've, I've always assumed that that was something to do with the victor's crown, the way in which the the victor was crowned had the Stephanos of uh, perishable wreaths, um, the unfading crown of glory that waits for us, as Paul, which Paul contrasts with the fading crown that the athletes win. So crowns have a kind of athletic background, a bit like Olympic medals, uh, somewhere in the in the tradition. And also a
0: strong association with suffering. They don't. They always seem to be connected in the New Testament in one way or another with suffering.
2: Because you are victorious, you you emerge the victor from the experience of the suffering, redeemed by Christ, and so you're crowned with the victor's crown. Um, and it's again, it's specifically the the crown of the person who's uh, achieved a, a victory in the in the race or in the contest. I was very struck by her saying that uh, we're not really a bicameral system in this country; we're a unicameral system with a revising chamber bolted on, and it, uh, it reminded me of what Bob Morris was saying about we're not really a monarchy; we're really a republic in this country, but with a a monarchical um, a set of monarchical imageries and, and languages. Uh, bolted on. Uh, certainly what came across from what she was saying is the way in which the crown is the fount of everything in our uh, national life. So um, the crown is the fount of justice and we have justice in this country because the the, the monarch provides justice for uh, his or uh, her people uh, and we have uh, security because the uh, crown uh, causes there to be armed forces to uh, take care of our defence. And uh, the crown is the fount of honour and uh, the crown is the... Supreme Governor of the Church of England. We had the we had the precise title in, in that conversation. I've noticed one or two people have said Head of the Church of England, which was a phrase that Henry VIII did indeed use in the 1530s to the great scandal even of those bishops who supported him. And the minute that he was gone and Edward VI was king, they changed the title to Supreme Governor. But I am struck by the notion that uh, whether or not you're an Anglican, whatever you are uh, in this country, uh, the crown at least provides for there to be one uh, decent and godly religion for you uh, to be part of.
0: I really liked what she said about establishment, the two terms, doing God and making meaning. I think maybe that's a, that. particularly doing God is a, a nice up to date equivalent that uh, perhaps we should use more often.
2: But but we we find ourselves talking often about establishment as uh, something to do with bishops in the House of Lords and beautifully lucid explanation there of how that works, um, and uh, talking about um, the, um, the the king as the supreme governor of the church. Kingdom. But but where you are um, in um, where where you are by Regent's Park, what does establishment mean for you? Uh, that's a very interesting
0: and evolving question, I think, and I, I think it. In terms of our dealings with institutions immediately outside the church, 20 years ago, it was easier to have access to some of them on the basis of being a Church of England priest. And I think for most people, it seems to be less and less relevant, sadly. And I think particularly the recent change in marriage law which means that we're no longer registrars of marriage, we simply conduct marriages and then provide proof that we've done so, is probably one of the last sort of chippings away at the connection, the real connection between church and state, other than what Maeve was describing in terms of her own work and observation of the bishop's work in the House of Lords.
2: Yes, sadly, I think you're probably right about that. I, I do, I relish at the fact that people in in the parish have a claim upon me simply because they're resident in the parish i and on the ground for me it's about pastoral responsibilities certainly not about financial support or anything like that mm-hmm. but pastoral responsibility and i wish more people knew and understood that and i wish that more people uh, knew that they could come that that there would the pastoral care is available for anyone who wants it of course there's great pastoral need but we we know so little of of what it actually is and i rejoice when i am able to marry people or um, able to 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 greet people who are not particularly churchgoers and with some sort of pastoral care and there's still i find here a a bit of the old convening power that when we were celebrating last year the platinum jubilee of her late majesty it it was naturally the church of england that got people together in the community across lots of faiths and none to say what are we going to do together to celebrate this Yes. Yes. And similarly, I'm I'm off very shortly to uh, a meeting with um, uh, at the mosque with um, the rabbis present and we'll be talking there among the faiths as to what can we do um, about celebrating together and being seen to celebrate together the coronation on the 6th of May. And it somehow naturally falls to the Church of England person to start that conversation and to gather people together to have it. And I, I value that. Yeah. The parson. Nice old term. Yes, the the old term, the the person of God in this this place. Uh, Thinking of the uh, other faiths towards the end of her conversation, she uh, was looking forward to uh, or hoping that there might be some kind of active involvement of other communities of faith in the coronation. Um, Now, clearly, there will be many honoured guests from other faith communities there. Um, What do we think that an active involvement of other faiths in the ceremonies might look like? A very interesting
0: question. Still, n- no indication. I, I would imagine that certainly bef- before the king arrives during the procession, there may be some interesting opportunities uh, immediately outside the abbey, perhaps, uh, or in Westminster Hall, or on the way back from the abbey. Uh, and certainly, as we've discussed with other guests, the the, the invitation of Interfaith guests, I think, is really important. What they would feel comfortable doing in a church within a Eucharist is something that
2: we need to know more from them about, I think. Yes. And I suppose that there's a certain amount of um, there are quite a lot of things that need to be carried in the coronation and put in place, ready to be used. And in past coronation, there those rules about uh, which prebendaries of Westminster got to take the orb from place A to place B before the orb was given to the monarch. And it might be that there was some role for other faith communities in moving those things around into yes. the position where they're going to be needed. I really hope that that sort of thing is is incorporated. I think it'd be very interesting and exciting to see. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm sure that other people are thinking about this even now, and we'll wait and see on the day uh, what happens.
0: Thank you so much for listening in our last episode jamie hawkey canon theologian of westminster abbey will be offering us a theology of monarchy in the 21st century